0: And for the rest of you, if you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter nine, that's where we will be today. Hebrews chapter nine. We are quickly making our way through the book of Hebrews. At least it feels quick to me, maybe not to everyone, um, but it has certainly been a joy and a privilege to get to uh, sink so much time and energy into this book. Hebrews chapter nine. I want to take a a moment and just give a quick word, um, sort of an explanation, but also just kind of. I think it's always good for you as a congregation to hear what's going on in the, in the heart and mind of the elders. You maybe have noticed over the past few weeks that um, I've started doing something different that I didn't used to do. I've been having you stand for the reading of God's word. Um, and uh, the reason we do this, we want you to know that here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, we, we make it uh, a mission, we, we try and make it our aim that everything we do from the smallest to the greatest thing in our worship has a purpose. That nothing that we do in worship is meaningless. That is our goal, that is our desire. And so even in having us stand for the re- reading of God's word has a purpose and the purpose is the significance with which and the in the proper passion, not passion, the proper posture that we take as we approach the word of God. When we come this morning as you sit here today in these pews, you come and you're going to hear from a man, you're going to hear from Denton Ice. But my hope is that you would be checking everything that I say by the word of God which we Will read before I say a word uh, of about the text, because the word of God is what matters. The word of God is where the power is, and nothing that I say is there any power except what aligns with the word of God, and that's why we we have decided to just bestow a bit more significance in line with uh, with a, a relatively thick line throughout church history of giving significance to the reading of God's word and showing that by standing. And we're going to also do that, you maybe have noticed we we did a few times, and for those of you who are confused by it, I apologize, we should have given a a heads up, but after I read the word of God in recognition of the significance of what we have just read, I will declare to you, the audience, that this is the word of the Lord, and an appropriate and right response, and one I hope that you will engage with is uh, to that statement is praise be to God. And so with that being said, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, As we hear from the Lord today, as he's spoken to us in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through verse 14. The word of God says this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. You You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage today in Hebrews and ask once again, Lord, for your grace. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to do the work that he does of helping us to see and helping us to understand, of opening up our ears and our hearts to the word of the Lord. Lord, guide me as I preach. Humble me and the rest of us as we approach the word of the Lord today. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by considering a parable that Jesus told, a parable found in, in Matthew 13. And it is one of my favorite parables, in fact. It's a very short parable. In fact, it's only one verse in Matthew chapter 13, and it is the parable of of the hidden treasure it is not a story about pirates it is in fact much greater than that the parable that Jesus told is one of a man who finds a treasure hidden in the field he finds a treasure hidden in a field and the text says that in his joy he went sold everything that he had and purchased that field so that he might obtain that treasure I love this parable because it so simply lays out the kingdom of God. It so simply lays out the beauty of what it is that we have in Christ Jesus. That whatever it is that we have apart from Christ, however great it may be, however rich it may seem, whatever it is that we have pales in comparison to Christ, the treasure of great value. This parable reminds us of, the worth that Christ is to us. That this man not only goes and sells all that he has. But he is not reluctant in his selling. He is not reluctant and he, as he sells off all of his possessions. But the text says he does so with joy. Knowing the value of the treasure that he has just obtained. It is my opinion that this is what the author of Hebrews is doing with his Jewish audience. He is proposing to them... That Jesus Christ and the new covenant that is mediated by him is better than all that they have in the old covenant. That he is the treasure of great value, that he is the pearl of great price, and that he is worth getting rid of all that you have in order to claim him, in order to take hold of the new covenant. His argument to his Jewish listeners is that the new covenant, Christ, is better than. Than the old covenant is better than the law that they had to give up the old covenant would have been very very tough a very tough thing for the author to ask of his jewish listeners and yet that is exactly what he's doing throughout the entirety of this book his plea is let go of this thing get rid of that thing and embrace something greater something better something of immense value that could not compare he is encouraging them to let go of all of this. He is asking them to give up the old covenant in exchange for the new. And he is going to great lengths to demonstrate to them the superiority of the new covenant over the old. To put this in terms that I'm sure all of us in here can relate. If you are familiar with disc golf, as I'm sure most of you are. You'll know that the most valuable disc on the market today is the 2015 Nate Sexton Firebird Pro Tour Series in the glow color configuration. I know you're all familiar with this. Imagine someone were to come up to you and say, I've got this tour series, Nate Sexton Firebird in the glow configuration that I would be willing to trade you for your whole bag of discs. And I can tell you right now, for me, that would be a no-brainer because I've seen on eBay how much those things sell for and I could buy 10 of my bags of disc off discs for the price of that one disc. And that is very much like the comparison that we have here today. We have before us today, as the author is presenting it, a greater, a better covenant, of better value, that it doesn't even compare, it doesn't even come close to what it is that the old covenant can provide. The author of Hebrews wants his readers, wants the Readers and receivers of this letter to know that this deal, this exchange of the old covenant for the new, that it is no gamble. There is no risk involved. His attempt here is to demonstrate to them the greatness of the new covenant so much so that they can trust that it is better, that it is one that has power, that it is one that brings redemption. If you remember from last week, if you were here, we talked about. All that we have in Christ Jesus, it is as though we have not only won the lottery, but like the man in our story last year or last week won the lottery, and then in the news event where they were describing his lottery win, they had him buy another lottery ticket and scratch it off, and on the news, right then and there, won another $250,000. Like that is what we have in Christ Jesus in the new covenant. We have win upon win upon win. But the difference between that man winning the lottery and us today is that There is no gamble involved. There is no risk involved for us to forsake the old things in exchange for the new. The author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, would have us see that clearly today that it is a safe bet. In fact, it is no gamble at all. It is a sure thing and our only hope. He does this in this portion of the book by considering the earthly tabernacle and what takes place within it. And then comparing that to Christ and the heavenly tabernacle in the true presence of God and what it is that He does for us that this earthly tabernacle and the earthly priests could never accomplish. And we start this process in verses 1 through 5 as He begins to lay out for us a picture of what the Old Covenant was. We see here in in verses 1 through 5 a sort of snapshot of the Old Covenant where He describes the temple, the tabernacle even, and the the makeup thereof. We see from these first five, five verses uh, a picture, a snapshot of the old covenant. And now in verse five, the Holy Spirit expresses that he does not feel the need to speak in much detail about all of the elements of the old covenant, for indeed this is only a snapshot. There's far more detail there is to be exposed of the old covenant. And And if you want to know more, I would encourage you to go read uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers to gain a a full understanding of the Old Covenant, for there is much detail to be found there. But the author decides in this situation here, in this, uh, and what his goal is, that there's no need to go into detail. But I do think it would be good for us to just briefly consider the aspects uh, of the Jewish tabernacle that he mentions as he is writing, he first of all, first of all, discusses the layout of the temple. If you are familiar with the layout of the temple and, and which was modeled after the tabernacle that was uh, described to Moses and was built in the wilderness, then you'll know that the tabernacle, the place of worship consisted of two specific areas inside the tabernacle. The first was called the holy place. It was the main area inside, the, temper, uh, inside the, the tabernacle and the temple where the priests would go in and they would make sacrifices and they would do the work uh, that they were called to do. But then even inside that, there was what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And this was the place that the very presence of God dwelt. And not only did this place constitute the center of tabernacle worship, but it constituted the very center of worship for the nation of Israel, that in the very center of the camp was not only the tabernacle, but at the very center of that was the holy of holies. And he describes the curtain that separated the two, the curtain that we know from our reading of the New Testament was torn into when Christ died on the cross. We see here depicted various layers of access to God that must be gone through in order to obtain a standing before him, in order to enter into his presence and only one priest only once a year was able to do so. He then goes on to discuss what's inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And he describes and discusses what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. And even in what we see here being depicted, being described inside the Ark of the Covenant, we see some of the greatest moments and some of the greatest highlights of God's providence to his people in these very objects. First of all, we see the urn containing manna. The manna, the the food that the Lord miraculously provided for his people in the wilderness that fell from heaven. They would wake up in the morning and the ground would be covered with this, this food that they were able to eat and sustain them. It was a picture of God's miraculous sustaining of the people of Israel as they were in the wilderness. The second item described in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's staff which budded. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, it's an amazing story in Numbers chapters 16 and 17 where after this great rebellion, Korah's rebellion, where the people, so many of them rebelled against the leadership that God had put in place. They rebelled against Moses and Aaron, the high priest. And ultimately, this rebellion resulted in the death of almost 15,000 people. But then in the next chapter, number 17, what we see is the Lord demonstrating in a miraculous and amazing fashion, the priesthood of Aaron, the the priesthood that would come through his line, through the line of Levi, the ones whom the Lord has chosen to be the mediator for the people. That although the people could not go into the holy place or the holy of holies, access would in one sense be granted them via a mediator. Even that, as we see, is a mercy of God. In Numbers 17, 12 through 13, we see this amazing statement as the Lord has now laid out Aaron and demonstrated this by the miraculous budding of his staff, this staff that was cut off from any living tree. It was placed before the ark and in addition to all the other tribes of Israel, having one staff laid, and there was one staff, Aaron's staff, that in the course of one night budded Brought forth, bud, forth buds, not only that, but even bore fruit in the form of almonds. And the people of Israel responded to this. We see their response in Numbers 17, verses 12 through 13. The people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? The significance the picture that we see in the budding of aaron's staff is that yes god is holy and yes to approach the holy is to summon death in the state in which we stand and yet the lord in his grace and in his mercy has chosen to allow a man to mediate for the people and the man aaron was the one in whom the lord chose and through his line The high priest would continue to come, that the Lord would grant access once a year by one man into the Holy of Holies in order to intercede for the people. The third thing we see in the Ark of the Covenant is the tablets, the tablets on which the, the law was given to Moses. And at first glance, this might not sound like a mercy. This might not sound like a good thing, for we know that through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law brings only recognition of sin and condemnation, but cannot save. But when we consider the need that we have of knowing God's righteous standard, of knowing what it is to sin, of knowing what it is to need a savior, to need a mediator, we begin to see the value in the law. All of these things, these most amazing aspects of Israel's history are found here in the Ark of the Covenant. And then finally, he describes the mercy seat. If you are familiar with the ark of the covenant you'll know that the mercy seat which was located at the top of the ark was the place which the very presence of God dwelt among the people again a grace for God himself chose even though mediated even though cut off in a sense from the people he chose to come and dwell with and among his people and though the author doesn't go into great detail all of the specifics that uh, that we were given to this point, point us to the aspects of the religious system that are the greatest moments in Israel's history, that are the greatest moments and aspects of Judaism. These are the things to which the author draws attention. So, again, as we have said over and over again, the intention of the Holy Spirit is not to say the old covenant was bad or that the law was bad. For indeed, we see the grace of God at work even through that old covenant. But not to the point that it could cleanse, that it could save. So then after describing the layout of the tabernacle, the objects found within it, the author then moves to the next section where he describes the work of the priest that takes place within the tabernacle. And we see this in verses 6 through 10 where he says this. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes... And he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places has not yet been opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. And then he says this, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations uh, for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people, and yet this place was restricted. Access to this place was restricted by God for the people. Only the priests were able to go into the tabernacle, and then only one priest was able to enter into the most Holy place and only once a year in order to make sacrifice for sin in order to make the sin offering for the people. He entered in with this exclusive purpose of making sacrifice for the people. There was no mingling around in the, the holy of holies. There was no hanging out. There was no fooling around there. But there was one specific purpose to which this man entered into the holy of holies and it was to make sacrifice for the people. But the question has to be asked, to what end? To what end was this sacrifice made? For we know from our text that the end of this sacrifice, the purpose for which it was made, was not to remove the sins of the people. For Hebrews tells us over and over again that the sacrifice of bulls and goats and animals can never remove sin. So the question is, to what end were these sacrifices made? There are some commentators who would say that, that the idea that the man, the priest would make sacrifices would serve simply to cover sin, but never to remove sin. And I think this is a helpful way of thinking through what it is that the high priest did, that sin was never removed through the sacrifice of the high priest in the holy of holies. But simply by this, in this act of obedience, the Lord graciously stayed off his wrath But the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 9 that according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot cleanse, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And this is where the problem lies. This is where we really get to the heart of the problem. The problem at hand is that what we need we cannot find through the offering of animals. What we need is true cleansing, not simply exterior cleansing, not simply cleansing of the flesh, mere outward cleansing, but we need a deep cleansing, a cleansing of the conscience. And this is sad news when we, seeing that humans have a great deal of guilt on our conscience, recognize that there is no way in this world to be rid of our guilt. Because we feel the weight of guilt. Human beings the world over feel the weight of their sin, whether they acknowledge that or not. The problem of guilt persists in the world today, and it is a problem that is not easy to bear. And we know the weight of guilt. We can consider the, the weight that guilt brings when we just consider a few examples. There was, there was a moment just uh, this last week where uh, uh, a, a friend of ours and their, their child were getting out of their car, and their car door hit my car door. This kid opened his car door, hit my car door, and boom, guilt was laid upon him. As fast as that was. And so the, the father of this young man brought him to me, came and said, go ahead. And He came to me and said, I'm so sorry. Tears were welling up in his eyes. And he said, I've hit your car with my car door, and I'm really sorry. And if there's any way that I can make it better, if there's any way that I can help fix it, Tell me and I'll do it. And it almost brought me to tears. As this poor young man was just broken by the guilt of what he had done. And he hadn't even done it on purpose. This wasn't an a act of aggression. This wasn't an, an act of rebellion against me. It was an accident. And yet even this accident brought such guilt as this young man just stood there with tears in his eyes. Confessing to me what he had done. And, and desperate to find some way to make it right. To... Cleanse the guilt that remained in him. And of course, I was more than happy to say, don't worry about it. As I'm about to cry, as you're standing here confessing to me, don't worry about it. And it was a, a great moment for me to get to express to him the ways in which I have sinned against the holy God, and he has forgiven me of so much. But even in that example, and many of us can relate to that, whether you've been a child who who threw a ball through a window or maybe hit someone's car with your car door or whatever the case may be, and you had no choice, you had no recourse but to go and just be completely exposed and vulnerable to this person standing in your guilt saying, I've done this thing. It's unfortunate, I think, for us that we as adults have become very talented and very creative in finding ways to get around that sense of guilt. We find it very easy, I think, to sometimes... Just suppress that guilt, put it away. Maybe find ways to cast that guilt onto someone else. Whether it be in our workplace when we do something wrong, when we mess up. Isn't that our first thought always? How can I rid myself of this guilt? And namely, how can I do it without my employer knowing that I did it? How can I rid myself of the guilt of this thing that I have done, whether accident or whether on purpose? The problem of guilt then becomes very clear as we consider this. Because consider the, just the, the pain, the agony, the weight it is as a child to stand before someone that you've dinged their car door and to have to stand there before them and say, I'm sorry, and I've done this thing, and is there any way that I can make it right? And then consider the reality of standing before a holy God, completely exposed, No way to hide our sin, no way to hide our guilt, but it's simply weighing down on us. And what hope would we have to stand before a holy God and say, I have gravely sinned against you. I have rebelled against you and I am guilty. What can I do to remove my guilt? Because the answer to that question is nothing. There is nothing that we can do to remove the guilt. That rests upon us before a holy God because of the sins that we have done. There is nothing that we can do. The problem is guilt remains in the heart of man because sin remains in the heart of man. And as long as sin remains in the heart of man, the guilt from sin will never be removed. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, guilt cannot be removed so long as sin remains And we as human beings try very hard, don't we? We're very good at masking our guilt, finding ways to soften the feeling of guilt, or even casting our guilt onto someone else. At T4G 2022, Together for the Gospel, this last spring, there was a uh, a great lecture that was given by Kevin DeYoung. and, And I call it a lecture because if you've ever heard Kevin DeYoung at T4G, you'll know that it is a lecture. Uh, if you are, are there planning on sitting back and being spoon-fed by uh, Kevin DeYoung, you are in the wrong place, and, and he admits as much as he begins his his lecture. But he gives this amazing lecture on the subject of justification and specifically how it deals with the problem of guilt, and I would encourage you to go find that lecture and listen to that. But one of the points that he makes about guilt is, is a very good point and one that I think highlights what it is that we see in our culture today where he says of the culture he says quote we have psychologized underst- our we have a psychologized understanding of guilt which then leads to therapeutic notions of forgiveness and he elaborates more on this but basically what he's saying the the point that he's getting at is that we have an understanding of our guilt as though it is something That is simply a feeling. It is is psychologized. It is not something that is necessarily rooted in a reality, but is simply a feeling or an emotion to be dealt with, to be removed or to be suppressed if we are to be happy. Guilt moves from an objective reality to simply being a feeling to be overcome, which is why the... Role of a therapist has become so great and so profound in our culture today I know this is an oversimplification perhaps, but It is it is my opinion that A bunch of therapy that takes place in this world today in our culture Is people desperately trying to deal with guilt that cannot be removed by any means this world has to offer We can suppress the feeling of guilt We can try and put the responsibility of guilt on someone else, whether that be our parents, whether that be our culture, whether that be our enemies. But the reality is that the guilt still remains. and all of our attempts to remove guilt, the reality of guilt remains. Even if we are able to soften the feeling, the emotions that we feel because of our guilt. Until we acknowledge the one That we have sinned against the one whom our guilt is against. Then we will never find absolution for our sins. We will never find forgiveness. All we can do is deal with the symptoms of guilt. But never deal with the root of it. Until we come to the one and acknowledge the one that we stand guilty before. This is why I think it is so uncomfortable for unbelievers. When we share the gospel with them. Because if you are sharing the gospel with someone, and if you are doing so correctly, then you are exposing to them their guilt before God. Preaching the good news of the gospel to someone, telling them of their guilt, is a ripping off of the the band-aid and of the makeup that we as human beings have, have poured onto our guilt, poured onto the problem to try and mask it, to try and hide the feeling, to try and hide the stench that remains because of sin. And in sharing the gospel with people, we expose to them the reality of their guilt, the reality of their sin, and it makes them extremely uncomfortable. But then we see the goodness of the gospel. And we see the goodness of the gospel bursting off of our pages in verses 11 through 14 of our text where we read this. But when Christ appeared, those are good words right there, aren't they? When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. We talked last week how Christ mediates for us in the true tabernacle, the true holy place in the very presence of God. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. We see in our text here today the comparison made between the priests and Christ. The priests who offered sacrifice in the most holy place were cleansed in a fleshly sense, they were cleansed in one sense by the blood of the sacrificial animals, as we see in, in verse 13. Where he says, for if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. The idea here being that there is a sort of fleshly, outward, temporary purification that comes. These priests who offered the sacrifices were in a sense cleansed fleshly. Yet it is doubtful to me that any of the high priests who ever offered sacrifice in the most holy place, after making this offering, after sprinkling the blood, ever thought to himself, well, I feel like that did the trick. My conscience is clear. We're good. All done, right? I'm doubtful that the high priests ever thought any such thing, and even if they did, it would have been very fleeting. It would not have been a long-lasting sense of clarity of conscience because It would not be long after that, that they would be reminded of their own sin, reminded of the need for more sacrifices, and reminded of the fact that next year another high priest was going to have to enter into the most holy place again. That sacrifices had to be made year after year, time and time again. That even these offerings in the most holy place in the tabernacle made by human hands could not solve the problem, could not cleanse us of guilt. But here is where the good news is found in verse 14. If purification of the flesh came by these sacrifices, the sprinkling of the blood of animals. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The good news is that there is a new covenant with a better priest, a better tabernacle, and a better sacrifice, all of which produces for us better and lasting results. Results that were never seen through the old covenant. Verse 14 tells us that the blood of Christ does what had never been done through all of the sacrifices that had ever been made to the entire history of Israel. The blood of Christ purifies our conscience perfects our conscience and the blood of christ finally guilt has been dealt with how because sin has been dealt with in christ's blood so then it is true what the old hymn says what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of jesus oh precious is the flow That makes me white as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Consciences of man cannot be cleansed. Guilt will remain outside of the blood of Jesus Christ, and only through his blood can we ever find forgiveness of our sins and cleansing of our conscience. The new covenant that is found in Christ is far greater than the old. It is no gamble then to place your trust in Christ. It has been clearly demonstrated by the author of Hebrews that it is a safe bet. There is no risk involved in trusting in Christ Jesus. Like the man who sold everything in his joy so that he might go and buy this field and obtain this treasure. So too, Christ is better than all that we could ever have. This is the appeal to the Jews that the author is making. Let go of the old covenant in exchange for the new, for the new is of far more valuable, far more value. And not only let go of that thing, but like the man who sold all that he had, do so with joy and with expectations of the benefits that come from Christ. You see, that man would never have sold all of his possessions without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt for a fact That that treasure, that prize was of greater value than his home and his possessions. It is the reality of Christ upon which we base our hope. Upon which we base our faith. This is the appeal that he makes to the Jews that he is addressing. But it is also the appeal that Christ makes to each and every one of us in here today. And I know that I am speaking here today predominantly to a group of non-Jews. It's my guess that none of us in here are desperately holding on to the old covenant with the sacrificial system and the tabernacle and the holy place. Hoping that that will save us. It is my understanding that most of us in here are not clinging to the old covenant. And yet it is also a very real possibility that there are many of us in here today that waver in our understanding of the value of Christ. That fail to see him as worth everything and there are so many today that though they don't cling to the old covenant they cling to other things the works that they can produce the efforts that they can put forward as a means for their hope of their salvation but there is no hope to be found in those things there is no more hope to be found in our attendance to church our partaking of the lord's supper our confession of sins to one another or to our pastors there is no more hope in any of those things than there was and the sacrifice of a goat under the Old Covenant. There is only hope to be found in Christ Jesus because only in Him can we truly be cleansed. A deep cleaning, a cleaning down to our very conscience. Trust in Christ today for your cleansing. Trust in Christ today for indeed it is no gamble to rely on Him. Let's pray.